there is nothing called overnight uh, success. So you need to be patient and uh, always aim for the long game. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Saravana Kumar, CEO of Kovai.cl, a software company offering multiple enterprise and B2B SaaS products, including a customer success product, a self-service knowledge-based product, an enterprise software for Microsoft BizDoc and Azure serverless platforms. Founded in 2011, Kuvai.co has over 240 employees across the UK and India. This year, Kuvai.co's annual revenue has topped $10 million. In this episode, we discuss the benefits of true thought leadership, diversifying your product offering, and the winning in your niche. Let's get into it. I am originally from uh, India, so I came to London back in 2000. So for the first 10 years, uh, I was working as a consultant in a very specific technology called Microsoft BizTalk Server. It's an enterprise integration product. So it helps companies to connect different systems together. So if you look at a large company like a Shell or a Boeing, so they will have like, you know, 20 different enterprise systems like SAP and Oracle and PeopleSoft and Workday and Salesforce and this and that. They all need to talk to each other at some point. And this Microsoft BizTalk server is a, is a middleware product that sits in the middle and it helps to connect all these systems uh, together. That's my area of expertise on consulting. And I did uh, 10 years of that uh, implementing solutions for different customers. And that's when I found a gap in the market. Like every time, you know, like uh, every customer uh, I'm working with, we are redoing uh, same thing again and again. Like once you deploy some solutions into the production system, how do you run it on a efficiently, like on a day-to-day basis, uh, the, the security aspects and the monitoring and analytics. And uh, when you have a large team, like uh, how do you manage it and uh, those kind of things. That is how, you know, that is when, you know, I identified a problem. And then I started as more like a typical founder. I'm coming from a technical background and there's no business intention. I thought, okay, there is a problem. Let me try to solve it. And I started uh, working on it on part-time. So I started building some stuff. And then after a year later, like I went to Seattle, Redmond for a, for a Microsoft conference. And I was showing to the guys like, okay, this is what I, you know, I've been working on for almost a year. And what do you think about it? And they, everybody, everybody said, oh, this is exactly what they want. And they're really, you know, like uh, happy to, you know, like uh, pay for it. What happened in the, the road to first million in revenue? Uh, how did you find your first customers? How did you choose the marketing channels? How were you acquiring those customers? Now, coming from a technical background, of course, you know you start from zero. You know nothing about uh, how do you take your product to to an end customer. When I think back, you know, like a lot of things happened without even my knowledge. You know, today those things are people spend a lot of money. Even we do a lot of spend a lot of money to get to the channel. So. The way it worked out well for me was uh, since 2004, BizTalk Server, even today, if you go and search for any article, anything related to BizTalk, I guarantee the first two two results will be something from my blog. So I've written over 500 articles, very deep technical articles about this particular technology. When I launched the product uh, in 2010, 
And the first thing I did was, you know, just put a website, basic website over a weekend. And then I just put a blog post saying, okay, this is what it is. And then all of a sudden, the first inquiry came all the way from Hong Kong through the site. I, have, I don't have any connection with the person from Hong Kong. And that, that's how the, the first customer came uh, for the product. And uh, at that time, you know, like I had about 15,000 readers for, for that blog. And we were considering this is a very niche uh, area, like Microsoft themselves got only about 10,000 customers worldwide uh, for this product. So with that context, you can imagine like when you have 15,000 readers, probably you build up that audience of the entire community without your knowledge. So from 2004 to 2006, I was blogging for my own, out of my own interest. You know, like it just appears to being a pure technical enthusiast. I was building it and then that became my audience. That is one thing. And the second thing is, you know, in Microsoft, there's something called most valuable professional. So it's called MVP. Uh, Microsoft basically monitors people who are very influential in the in the community. Who, you know, I used to speak in user group. It's nothing to do with business. It's more about you know technical user groups, uh, presenting and explaining problems, and they give you like uh, this MVP award. But there are only like. Uh, 20 people in the whole world awarded this MVP for this specific technology. So if I look back now, you automatically an influencer within that community with, you know, like people follow you and then people, you know, like look out for your articles and speaking and all those things. So that is the second channel, like, you know, automatically you become an influencer and, uh, and that brought in a lot of, you know, like interest and leads. Later, you know, we scaled up. Being in London, it helped me to go and speak in various small user group meetups in anywhere in Europe. It's about a couple of hours flight journey. So even if I see there is something coming this evening or next evening, I'll just reach out to the organizers and I'll go present it. And that became, every time I go, it's a very small group, you know, 50 people, some 30, 40 people user groups, I go present. And then you'll automatically, by at the end of the day, you'll get, you know, the three, four valid leads. And then eventually it will convert as well. A key ingredient missing from a lot of folks' thought leadership is actually putting in the thought. By definition, it should be about elevating the conversation in your industry. You can't get there without putting in the work, thinking about that one thing all the time for years. Saravana has put countless hours into his blog and event appearances and put time and effort into becoming an influencer in his niche. Thought leadership is more than just giving stuff away for free. Here's Andy Crestudina, co-founder of Orbit Media Studios, on what he thinks makes an effective thought leader. My thesis here is that thought leadership is really the intersection between three specific things. One, having a strong personal brand. Two, taking a stand on things. And three, of course, you've got to be an expert. If that looks familiar, this may take you back to college. Remember Aristotle? Remember the three modes of persuasion? Logos, pathos, and ethos? It's the same thing. Ethos, have a strong personal brand. Pathos, take a stand up for something. Logos, be an expert on the topic. If you broke these down into like actual personas, you might conclude that there's something like this. The influencer, the key opinion leader, and the subject matter expert. And I'm saying now that you are not a thought leader unless you are in the middle and, and actually cover up on all three of those tactics. So it was like niche groups, niche uh, events, uh, niche content, and you were selling through your expertise one point did that start scaling beyond you? So it wasn't just about you in particular, but it, you know you had a team that was acquiring customers. Once you reach 50, 60 customers, then we started uh, partnerships because since it's a Microsoft ecosystem, there are companies, consulting companies who does the implementation of Microsoft products for their customers. 
And again, they came inbound as well. A lot of them, they somehow came to know about this product through their clients or somebody. And then we, we established the partner channels in multiple countries. Uh, we established some 40 or 45 partners across the world. They become one of the main driving uh, factors in terms of uh, bringing leads. Even today for that product, you know, it's a more of a partner-led uh, product. So we do a lot of uh, the paid channels, but the partners uh, contribute nearly 40-50% of the revenue for that. And then in 2013, we started our first uh, annual event. So we still do that in London. This became you know, one of the popular events in that particular community. So about 600 people across the world they travel to London. Uh, it's an in-person event. And Microsoft brings about 15 people from Redmond as a speakers to that event. So even for Microsoft, it became like a, one of the most important events they need to attend because we bring the right audience for them as well. All top Fortune 500 companies, they they come attend that event. So that became another important channel for us to acquire leads uh, today. Now, fast forward to today, you're not a, a monoproduct company anymore. You have launched other products since. So can you tell me about the strategy behind launching more products? For the first five years, we didn't do anything else. Just a single product and we focused and then we have grown that business uh, it reached a saturation point, uh, right? You know, you can only build so much. You can't just keep bombarding with, uh, you know, more and more features. And then you reach a point where, you know, like, uh, that's all you can do from a product perspective. And also that the Bistock server is a very niche market. The, the time is not really big. And it kind of worked out well as a bootstrapped uh, company because, uh, you know, the competition is less, of course, because it's a very niche, small niche and it's not, not fit for big players. So that helped us quite a bit to, you know, like focus and uh, get to a reasonable revenue. I think uh, I'll say, you know, like maybe five million or something like that at that point, you know, like uh, to get to that level. Then we you know, we started thinking, OK, you gained so much experience in the last five years, you know, building and selling a product. And, you know, clearly this is a very, you know, like a limited market and you wanted to do something. And that's when we started out, OK. That is main, one main reason. And the second main reason is uh, being a technical guy myself, I'm a bit worried about losing the team because, uh, you know, they, they, they get bored, right? After four or five years, you know, there's nothing much you can do. And uh, we built a really good team. And, you know, I wanted to make sure, you know, their career progress is also aligned. So that is also another uh, contributing factor. Okay, let's do something. And then the second product, Serverless 360 started. So that is with more with the Microsoft Azure because uh, Azure is getting a lot of traction. And we saw similar problems, what we addressed for this Bistock server happening in Azure. And that is when we started the second product. And after three years in 2018, we experienced a problem of these two products require a self-service knowledge base. Because we need to have a really good product knowledge base because we're enter- dealing with large enterprise customers like you know, Shell and Boeing and IKEA and those kind of people. And product documentation is very, very important. And that is when we identified a gap in the market. You know, like uh, when it comes to product documentation, it's typically served by a customer support product like Zendesk or Freshdesk or Intercom, uh, those kind of uh, product companies. But they don't pay too much attention to the documentation side because their core is uh, solving the ticketing system or chat and those kind of areas. And when it comes to self-service knowledge base, especially when you have like big uh, technical documentation team, we saw the gap and that is how the third product document 360 was started. And recently we we launched a product called Churn 360 for uh, customer success. 
it's a multiple factors contributor. And then we saw there's a potential for us to run it as a playbook. You know, after doing it two times, you know exactly how to do it, right? Two to three years is what it is required now to take a product from zero to, we, we keep 500K as a benchmark revenue. And we are confident every product, we can reach it in a two and up to three years time frame. Does each of these products have a separate, like a go-to-market team, separate sales, separate marketing, or is it just one team serving all? We run it like a multiple companies within the umbrella brand, COVID.co. So they are, you know, because they are all completely different. Each team is uh, approximately, you know, like a, a 30 to 40, but Document 360 is bigger. Uh, you know, half of the company is Document 360, about 110 people in uh, Document 360. Uh, but they all operate completely independent way. So they it's a, they have engineering team is different, marketing is different. I'll say like there are four companies within the main company. And there's a horizontal common services like uh, HR and accounts and uh, a small layer, but uh, they all operate independently. Yeah. Is that a deliberate strategy to launch products for different ICPs or it just happened? It just uh, happened, but also the, I think that is the right strategy as well because uh, I think I know some multi-product companies, they have like a common sales team to sell any any product. But the problem with that approach is uh, the, the team will pick up the easy ones, right? You know, some product may be harder to sell, some product may be easy wins. And also, you know, edu- educating the team is harder because uh, it's, it's more than, you know, like a sales guy should know your your product very well, the market landscape very well. They probably can't understand, you know, for four different markets and four different products very well, right? So I think it's, a, I feel it's the right strategy uh, to keep it really isolated. So when you scale, you move from generalist to specialist, right? You, you know, you really need more specialists for each one of those uh, disciplines. Uh, so that that's how we, we operate. Yeah. To win, you need to be a specialist, but you also need to have a solid foundation of knowledge. I've been talking for years about the benefits of having T-shaped people in your marketing team, but the theory applies to any area of your business. T-shaped people are the opposite of generalists. It's people who have deep expertise in two, three areas, but are also well-versed in a broad range of stuff. Like you can't do experimentation without strong knowledge about analytics, statistics, quality research, and so on. Here's author Mike Clayton explaining the concept of T-shaped people. If you want to get on, become a deep expert. Many people will tell you. These are, if you like, I-shaped people. Their knowledge runs deep. When people try to make predictions, try to forecast the future, It tends to be the experts who know one big thing who do particularly poorly. The people who have breadth to their knowledge understand the complex interdependent forces that work on the subject and tend to be more accurate, more reliable predictors. So how can you get the best of both worlds? Well, that's where the metaphor of T-shaped people comes in. They have both breadth and depth. They are able to understand and work within a wide range of domains, but within a narrow range of domains, they also have great depth as well. In technology, it's very common that whatever thing you build that's popular, that has traction in the market, copycats will come build near identical product. 
And so technological competitive advantage, you know, will go away unless you stop innovating. What's your point of view on this and what are you doing in response? Copycats will come, but what I realized is, you know, building products is still harder when you look at it at a scale. The first 20% will look as if like, you know, you got identical product, but the, where the product maturity comes is uh, attention to detail and a lot of uh, de- you know details inside the product and a lot of features inside the product. So the way we, we try to solve the problem is, you know, like a more innovative, we do more innovation. We are shipping features month after month. How much can you copy, right? Okay, you need to have equal bandwidth, power, and thinking, and uh, uh, and probably you will be lagging anyway. You know, only after we release something, and then after only after a year or so, you will catch up. And also, a lot of we will have a lot of features failure as well. If you keep copying, you don't know which one is working and which one is not working. So I, you know, I typically don't worry too much about uh, copycats. And also a product like Document 360, where it's more of a commodity market, you know, like it's a, it's so big. The market size is so big. Everybody needs a knowledge base. And you can segment it in multiple ways. You know, you focus on a niche segment where, you know, you could be very specific countries or very specific markets. And these days, people won't even know, like, you know, like they don't have time to evaluate five different products. So, you know, if your marketing message is good, it's not the product, right? It's, it's a like complete package. You need to copy the complete package, which is harder. You know, like you can't do it. Product and features alone may not be just enough. Uh, it's all about going pretty fast and then innovative. And then, you know, it's a, you're treating it as a full package. Um, we, of course, you know, invest quite a lot on uh, branding now. Our uh, company is in a city called uh, Coimbatore in India. So it's, you know, first uh, from a hiring perspective, you know, just uh, we, we invested quite a lot on building the brand. So, you know, people recognize and they, you know, they, at least the, the hiring side, we do that. And the product side, Document 360, for example, it's a lot of investment that goes into, into branding. Like we work with a lot of influencers in YouTube. There's a lot of investment that goes into, into content. And today, I'm just talking more on Document 360 because that is one of the focus for, uh, for us. It's a visible product in the, in the market. Like, you know, people today recognize that within that knowledge-based space, uh, we, we became one of the important players. And we also, you know, got brands like, you know, Airtable and G2. If you go to G2's knowledge base today and you know, if you like it, people probably will look at the source code and you will see references to Document 360. Uh, so there's a lot of branding that happens by winning large uh, top brands as well. So I think it's a multiple factors, yeah. Busy teams don't have time to evaluate hundreds of product options in the market. Because of this, Buyers rarely choose the best product. Instead, they satisfy, meaning that they choose familiar brands that offer good enough solutions. So you need to win on other things on top of the product, starting with mental availability. Invest in getting into the very limited consideration set of the buyers. So when they do have the need and budget one day, they think of you. Five key things to achieve this. One, avoid silence continuously trying to reach all buyers of the category. Two, grab attention and avoid sameness. Three, consistently use distinct brand assets. Many leading marketing effectiveness thinkers make the case that differentiation is increasingly hard, so focus on distinctiveness first. Four, be consistent about your brand. Five, repeat yourself a lot. 
Out of all the ads you run, 60% should be brand ads. People rarely buy brands they don't know. Do this in a way that makes them think of you the moment they have the problem you solve. What kind of triggers can you design around to do this? Well, it's a good idea to start by thinking about your customer's emotional triggers. Will Leach, the author of Marketing to Mind States, describes why. There's lots of studies that show you that the vast majority of decisions, like you're talking in the 95 percentile decisions are made emotionally first, then they look for the post-rationalization. They look for, oh, and you're also low price, and you're gonna make me look quality. They make the emotional decision first. Well, if you're not talking to your customer and helping them reach their emotional goals, they made the decision to not use you long before they look at your price anyways. It's a hard concept to get your head around, but there are studies and studies and years and years of research that are telling you that this is the best way to differentiate yourself is understanding the emotional goals, those higher order goals that people have, and then tactically talking about those in very unique ways, but ways that create that emotional arousal. So you just feel intuitive. You feel it feels natural to work with you. Why has your company succeeded when others, many others did not? Uh, looking back, what were some strategy decisions that really paid off? The way what we look at it is, you know, like it's not a zero-sum game, right? It winner takes all. Like maybe it will, apply, it will be applicable for, you know, Google or somebody. But majority of the time, there is enough slice for, you know, everybody to take it. As I mentioned if you segment it correctly, it's always going with a niche, right? For example, instead of saying customer success software, if you say customer success for B2B SaaS companies, then you can focus everything on the B2B SaaS companies. And if you become the number one player in the B2B SaaS companies space, then you know that is how that is, today's competition is intense. Ten years ago. When you build a product, you try to be as horizontal as possible, and then you try to acquire customers at all different ICPs. You really don't didn't even think about ICP. You know, whoever is your customer, you try to acquire. But today's market is, you know, the amount of competition and building products became easy. It's better to become like a number one player in a small niche and then dominate that uh, that niche completely. And that's exactly what we are doing with the, both the products, uh, so Document three hundred and sixty and Churn three hundred and sixty. Uh, because the SaaS is uh, becoming, B2B SaaS is becoming the next big thing. And everybody wants to become like a SaaS player and we are going after them. And we're doing a lot of work too, you know, like in terms of uh, the content strategy and you know the type of content we are writing, everything focused towards that. And that is how we, we separate ourselves from the rest of the competition. Even in small niches, content marketing is still effective. Yet I often hear from B2B niche companies that there's no volume for their keywords, no audience for their topics. Here are five content marketing strategies for niche industries from Ryan Law, VP of Content at Animals. One, create movement-first content to build credibility. Two, use targeted case studies to close dream accounts. Three, partner with industry publications to reach hundreds of decision makers. Four, Target related keywords and siphon off relevant prospects. Five, use Q&A content to funnel prospects to your products. What advice would you give to other B2B founders based on your lessons learned? There is nothing called overnight uh, success. So you need to be patient and uh, always aim for the long game. 
That is one important lesson. We stayed there for 10 years and some of the products, you know, you see nothing for two, three years. And that's the nature of uh, building products. You need to be pretty resilient and uh, persistent for a for a long period of time. And the second advice, you know, you need to understand the domain very well because that is another problem I have seen. I'm seeing free, you know, these days, young kids straight out of uni, they just jump and then, you know, they think they can go build uh, something. You can you probably can copy some ideas from here and there and then, you know, like you can do something, but for you to be successful, you need to understand the domain very well. It's I don't say it's wrong, like, you know, when you're younger, you can't do entrepreneurship. But at least invest, you know, year or 12 months or something, you know, understanding the domain very well. Even in our case, you know, we have four products now, but there are failed products in the company as well. And if I look back, all those failed products are basically, we thought we can also do it by just looking at somebody is doing well. Okay, let's also do it. And we tried it. And then we only after six months, you realize, okay, it it requires much more than just uh, looking at the top level. So, what are the three key strategies that helped Kovai.cl win? One, Saravana became a category MVP. If you go and search for anything related to BizTalk, I guarantee the first two results will be something from my blog. Two, they realized that they needed to diversify the product offering. You can't just keep bombarding with uh, you know more and more features, and then you reach a point where you know like uh, that's all you can do from a product perspective. Three, they dominated their niche by innovating quickly. It's better to become a, like a number one player in a small niche and then dominate that niche completely. One last takeaway from Saravana. Run it as a playbook. You know, after doing it two times, you know exactly how to do it, right? Two to three years is what it is required now to take a product from zero to, we keep finding a case benchmark revenue and we are confident every product we can reach it in a two and up to three years time frame. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.